Well, good morning, everyone. And maybe I should ask everyone over here to move over here, so I only have to look one direction. Uh, what's that? That's true. That's true. Man, Christina's full of jokes this morning. <laughs> and now everyone on the live stream knows it. <laughs> All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is uh, our final week um, on, in the forgiveness class. Uh, we've been going through Brad Hambrick's book, Making Sense of Forgiveness, um, moving from hurt toward hope. Um, and I hope you've found it helpful. Um, I, I found it, you know, I read the book a while back, but even just going through the material again has been helpful. Um, this week, as uh, well, let me actually say, uh, so this is the final week. Next week, we'll begin a, a four-week kind of mini-series on um, prayer. And so we'll, we'll spend two weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer and then two weeks looking at some of uh, Paul's prayers from his letters. And um, just realize it's not going to be four, four weeks of guilt trip, okay? It's not going to be four weeks of, you know, your, your, your prayer life's terrible, get, get in shape. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully it's encouraging. And let me pray, and then I'll, I'll tell you what we're going to talk about today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom that your word imparts to us. We ask that you would uh, continue to give us wisdom today as we look at these final um, topics related to forgiveness. Help us to be a, a people who forgive as Christ forgave us and uh, doing that wisely. Um, Lord, we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, um, two final topics related to forgiveness and uh the first is, is I've titled it, Leaving Room for the Wrath of God. I'll explain that in a moment. And then uh, the second is protecting other vulnerable people. So, um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground in talking about forgiveness. Um, what happens when you've done all that you could or... You know, we'll we'll talk in a moment. There's it always feels like there's another thing you could do, but you know, you've you've tried to pursue somebody who's wronged you, tried to work through the situation, just hasn't resulted in reconciliation. What do you do? And that's where this issue of leaving room for the wrath of God comes in. This is uh, this is from Romans 12:19. You can turn there for a moment if you li- if you like. I'm going to read uh, some of the verses before and after it. Um, Romans 12:19. In in this section, Paul's giving important uh, counsel on how to deal with relational conflict. And verse 19 says, "Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God." So there's that phrase: "Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, 'Vengeance is mine; I will repay,' says the Lord." Um, you know, it's a it's a Kind of a striking statement. What does Paul mean? Uh, leave it to the wrath of God. What is he talking about here? Well, let's just uh, talk for a moment about this verse in context. Um, the, the two verses right before, verses 17 and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So Paul, like I said, is dealing with relational conflict. What do you do? In these situations, um, two important pieces of counsel he gives. Don't resort to revenge after someone wrongs you. Um, that's the, you know, repay no one evil for evil. Um, and then he also says, do what's in your power to promote peaceful coexistence. So, um, you know, the if possible, so far as it depends on you, um, be at peace, live peaceably with all. So you have that, those two pieces of advice, counsel, and then verse 19 and following provides some more counsel about what to do in cases of relational conflict. But we usually ignore, or we often ignore what follows because it sounds very strange to us. But, but what do you do when, so far as it depends on you, um, doesn't bring about resolution? 
so you, you've walked down the path that he says, uh, I'm not resorting to revenge, I'm, I'm doing what's in my power to promote peace, to promote reconciliation, but it hasn't worked out that way. Now what do I do? That's where verse 19 um, comes in. Um, you know, our, our efforts to pursue reconciliation with someone who's, who's hurt us, are not, those efforts are not always successful. So that's the, that's the reality. You know, the, the ideal is that it would, it would work out that way. Doesn't always happen. And we're only responsible for what we ourselves can control. That's why Paul says, so far as it depends on you. Um, and Brad Hambrick just makes this important little point um, before we say more about this. He says, when we have done all that we can, whatever sadness we feel for unreconciled relationships should be called regret, not guilt. He says, we should feel, he says, we feel regret for things that we wish were different. So, you know, this, this relationship hasn't been reconciled. We wish it, it was different, that it had turned out differently. Um, we, we can feel regret about that. He says, but we should feel guilt for things we should have done differently. So, important little distinction here. We've done, you know, if we're following Paul's counsel, we've done what we could as far as it depends on us. We've tried to promote peace. Hasn't worked out that way. Um, we can feel regret, but we don't need to feel guilty about that. And so, um, what would be our inclination? You know, we're we're working really hard to try to restore this relationship. You know, we've invested a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of tear, a lot of tears into it, and so far there hasn't been reconciliation. What might be um, a temptation? What might be, you know, our inclination? It, it might be to just kind of seize control and, and lash out at the person. Why aren't you responding the way that I want you to? And that is, I think, part of the reason Paul follows up with verse 19. Um, Leave it to the wrath of God. Um, now, you know, mentioning God's wrath, it might sound like a, mean, a mean-spirited response, like, you know, you're not doing what I want, and so I'm going to have God, you know, come after you and, and make you miserable. But this is really, again, in the context of, you know, everything else we've talked about so, um, already in the forgiveness class, all the other steps, all the other considerations. You know, you've invested time, you've invested energy, which means you, you do have some uh, care and concern for the individual. But... Hambrick says, when you've done what you could and still um, there's no reconciliation, uh, Paul's saying, leave the person to God. Um, he, God promises to be just in his response to sin. Um, rest in that. Um, leave, live at peace. Um, in other words, you know, recognize you can't control the person's response. You, you can... You can control, you're responsible for the things that you can do, but in the grand scheme of things, you cannot control the other person's response. Which raises um, three uh, related questions. The one would be, well, how do I know when I've gotten to this point? How do I know when I've done all that I can? And a, a few things to say here. Um, it always feels like there's more we could do, right? I mean, if, if you've been in these kinds of situations, um, there's you, you could probably at any time come up with a list of about five to ten more things that you might try. Um, you know, should I give more money um, to the, the last time they blew it all on drugs? Maybe this time will be different. Maybe I should try again. Um, should I believe another tearful apology? This is like number 13. Um, maybe, you know, maybe this is the one. Uh, will this one be different? Um, uh, you know, one piece of advice here, trying to figure this out, don't make these decisions on your own. So you might want to 
Um, get advice from, from people whose character you trust, from people who have, uh, have experience with these kinds of situations and have had to navigate them, walk through them. What, what you want to do is get clarity um, on what would be a helpful response versus enabling unhealthy behavior. You know, um, maybe giving more money to the to the addict is not going to even though they're desperate they have you know maybe that's going to just further enable um, their their destructive behavior so um, other people can give you some insight but realize um, doing all you can doesn't mean this is important it doesn't mean there's nothing more you could do um, like I said you could probably come up with a list of several things you could do. What it, so what it means, do, uh, you know, as much as it depends on you, what that means is you've done enough, you've extended, um, you've invested enough energy, you've taken um, enough action, you, you've taken enough responsibility for what you, you can do to prove that the other person isn't committed to repentance and change. So you know you've you've extended the olive branch you've you've gone the extra mile you've done these things and the other person has shown themselves to be um, committed to their sin is a, is basically what we're saying they um, they're not committed to change and I find that we have a really hard time with this um, you know as Christians we we do have this. Um, we know that God can do um, amazing things, and so we're we're really hesitant to say there's nothing more that can be done because we're like, well, God does crazy things. God does amazing things. Um, you know, maybe another phone call will do the trick. Maybe just one more meeting. You know, we've had we've had ten meetings in the last you know three months, but one more. Um, or let's just give them more time. You know, it's already dragged on for for a year. They, they're not. There's been no change, but just more time, more time. Um, saying that I've done all that I can, it, what does it feel like? It feels like I'm just giving up. You know, um, giving up on the person. But there there comes a point where we have to accept that another phone call, another meeting. Um, a little more time is not going to change the situation. Um, uh, it's it's difficult to to accept that, but it's it's wise to do so. To realize I've done what I could, and, and I'm not talking here about like there was conflict and I made some little like superficial effort to to address it, and oh, I've done everything I could. I you know, we're talking about in the context of everything that that's come before in this in this book. Um, the problem is not that you know you haven't met enough times, you haven't talked it through enough. The problem is the other person's hard heart. And um, at this point, your meetings, your your words, your phone calls are not going to change that. And so, so when have you done all that you could? Uh, you've done all that you could when it's clear the other person is not committed to changing. They're not committed to repentance. You know, their 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 response to your investment in trying to bring about reconciliation is not. There is no response, or it's not a response of wanting to work through. Um, so Paul's counsel here is leave the person to God. That's all you can do. Uh, let let God deal with them however he decides to do it. Um, well, so that's one question. When have I done all that I can? Um, kind of a, two other questions. What if, uh, what if the offender is, is dangerous? So what if this person that you have the conflict conflict with is a dangerous person or the the offense the the thing that they've done is is an illegal action 
Uh, we'll talk about, well, what if they're not that kind of person? You know, it, We'll talk about that in a moment. So what if the offender is dangerous? What if the offense is illegal? Uh, we'll jump to a different passage for a moment, Romans 13. Uh, Paul addresses that kind of situation <clears throat> in Romans 13, 1 through 6. Um, I'll, I'll read this real quick. Uh, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur a judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Uh, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. So Paul says a lot there, but um, basically, uh, if you know, boil it down, uh, Brad Hambrick gives a good little paraphrase. When, when people do dangerous and illegal stuff, the godly response is to call the police. Uh, when people are abusive, it's God-honoring to get a restraining order. I mean, that, that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. God instituted civil authorities to deal with these kinds of situations when illegal stuff is going on, dangerous things. Um, Again, we, we tend to struggle with this as, as Christians. Um, well, why, you know, churches or individual Christians will ask, well, why do we need to get the government involved? I mean, we're, we can handle this ourselves. Um, that has almost always had very disastrous consequences, very disastrous outcomes. You know, um, you know abusive stuff is going on in a, in a church context. Ministry leaders are... are abusing children or something like that and the church just tries to deal with it on their own and you know they don't want that that information to get out because then it'll ruin our reputation but what ends up happening is the abuse gets just kind of ignored more people get hurt and then at the end of the day the news does come out anyway and it's worse than than it would have been if they had just been upfront about it and gotten the authorities involved right from the beginning um, so that's one, you know, we think, well, we'll just take care of this on our own. Um, or, you know, probably more commonly for us as individuals, um, you know, if we think, well, call the police. Um, isn't that being, you know, punishing instead of loving? I thought God calls us to love our neighbor. Well, getting the police involved when there's something dangerous or illegal going on is actually loving, um, for at least two ways. N um, number one, it limits the amount of damage the person can do. So it's it's a bad situation, and getting the police involved actually can like stop the bleeding a bit. You know, to use that that kind of picture, um, it limits the damage they they can do to more people. It limits the damage they they can do to themselves. Um, so that's one one reason it's loving. Uh, two, it, it's, it has the potential to wake them up to the severity of their actions. You know, what you're doing is so heinous that there's police officers at our home right now. Um, it, it can get their attention. So it, it's not a punishing act. Um, that's part of the reason Paul's saying, hey, if you don't want to, you know, be afraid of the authorities, just do. <laughs> Do right. You know, if, if you're a wrongdoer, you're, you're going to suffer the consequences. Um, you know, a, a criminal who gets upset at the people who call the police is being manipulative. The, the people who called the police didn't ruin this person's life. This person's poor decisions got them into this situation. It's not the people who, who called for help that, that caused the problem, that did the damage. It's the wrongdoer. So that's, you know, what if, what if the person's dangerous? What if they're illegal? The flip side is what if, what if the offender is, is safe? They're not causing harm to, to others or themselves. Um, and what if their offense is not some illegal action, 
but just an immoral action. Um, Well, Paul, back to chapter 12, addresses that after he says, leave them, you know, as far as it depends on you, live at peace, leave them to, to God. He says in verses 20 and 21, he says, to the contrary, um, in contrast to taking revenge, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What he's saying is, don't be so fixated on being right that you can't be nice. Um, how many of you have seen the little meme video uh, online? There's a little girl, like two or three years old, uh, feisty little girl, cute little girl, and she says to her mom, you know, do you want to fight or be nice? And it's funny. Trust me. Um, you know, don't be so fixated on, I'm, I'm in the right here. I, you know, I've got all the truth on my side, and so I'm just going gonna, gonna to give it to you. Um, being nice, now, so that's one side. Realize being nice is not the same as being naive. So, you know, think of everything we've talked about and about wise trust. But Paul's saying here, extend basic kindness to this person. The, the kind of basic kindness you would extend to a stranger in need. Um, he gives examples of, of giving them food and drink. You know, this is a, a starving person. This is a... a um, dehydrated person, uh, give them food and drink. You know, it's not like, well, I'm right here and I see you, you know, die in there, but you're wrong, so <laughs> just die. Um, being the wronged party doesn't give us permission to be jerks. I, I haven't yet found the Bible verse that says, as a child of God, you have the right to be a jerk. We often live like that's in the Bible, but I haven't found it yet. I, have any of you found that, that Bible verse? I'm pretty sure it's not there. Um, being the wrong party doesn't give you permission to be a jerk. So Paul says extend basic kindness. And then he, he gives this, uh, this exhortation to, uh, or he says, by showing kindness you'll heap burning coals on the person's head. That's a really, uh, I, I know we've all kind of encountered that, that verse before. What are you talking about, Paul? Um, you know, if you look at the commentaries on Romans, you get all kinds of explanations of what this might mean. And we'll get there eventually in Romans. But let me, let me give you just a, a quick um, explanation of what I think is going on. I think Paul's saying doing acts of kindness to, to an enemy, to someone who's wronged you, um, it, it gives them an opportunity to change. You know, their, their harsh words have been met with kind words or their, their violent behavior has not been, you've not responded in kind to their violent behavior. Um, it gives them an opportunity to change. And, and Paul is saying that kind of kindness, that, that response of kindness, might actually make them um, ashamed of their wrong behavior and lead to repentance. Um, when we get there in Romans 12, we can talk about why that might be what Paul's saying. But uh, Abraham Lincoln said the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. And I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. This person is is unreasonable. This person, you know, is is unkind. They're harsh, but you're not responding in kind. You're not responding to sin with sin, and it has the potential to kind of break through uh, the hardness, maybe. Um, If you're mean or indifferent to an enemy, um, it gives them reason to justify their mistreatment of you, right? So you got this this person that just, you know, um, verbally sword thrust with their words all the time. And if you respond, you know, you take out your sword and, you know, it's um, the Princess Bride, the the sword fight scene between, um, what's his name, Wesley, and what what's the Spanish guy's name? 
yeah, Inigo Montoya, <laughs> whatever his name is, you know, that sword, that amazing uh, duel. You know, if you, if you take out your sword, the person's like, well, I, I'm just, they're treating me poorly too, so I just, you know, I just did what, what they're doing. Um, kindness undermines whatever excuses the, the person might make for their harmful behavior. Um, so again, kindness is not the same as being naive. It's not just letting somebody, you know, uh, continue to cause harm and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'll just I'll say it again. Reco- you know, go back to everything else we've covered about wise trust so far in the class. So um, let me just summarize for a moment um, this idea of leaving it to the wrath of God. Um, we have to accept reality. Um, I, I like to talk about common sense, and I, I feel like often as Christians we lack common sense. We we over we spiritualize things that don't need to be spiritualized. We we kind of have this refusal sometimes to just deal with reality. And Paul is saying here, the reality is. You've done what you can. This person's not, they're not committed to change. They're not committed to repentance. And our best efforts, we need to recognize that, you know, we love the, the, Hallmark, the Hallmark stories where everything turns out wonderful in the end, but that's not real life. And we have to accept that our best efforts at reconciliation, restoration, do not always work. Um, and so we need the courage and the resolve to, to say, I'm leaving the person to God. And that's hard, right? Nobody wants to feel like they're giving up. But it's not giving up. It's just accepting what your role is. I can't control the outcome. I can't control the person's response. I, I, can, I, I just can't. And so this, it's always been in God's hands, but now it's just clear, it's clearer that um, I've reached the end of what I can do in obedience to, to the Lord, and now it's just entirely in his hands. So, you know, a question to consider um, under this topic is, you know, what are the ways you tend to get frustrated um, when healthy reconciliation is outside of your control. You know, if there's conflict and you've, you've invested time, energy, tears into trying to bring about reconciliation, what are the ways you get frustrated or exasperated when, when you can't make, you can't get the outcome that you want? And, and how does this, you know, related, how does this prolong the destructive um, relational pattern, you know? Your, your kind of reluctance to just leave it with God? How does it perpetuate you know, unhealthy scenarios, circumstances, events, actions? Um, how does it create confusion about where change really needs to begin um, with this person? So just things to think about. So on to a, another very pleasant topic. Um, protecting other vulnerable people. So, um, you know, most of what we've talked about in the class has been, you know, uh, our personal, you know, uh, there's been conflict and we're working through that as an individual with another individual. Um, but what about, you know, there's, there's often other people who are affected by whatever it is that's going on. And so we need to think about w- what would it look like to protect other vulnerable people. Now these kinds of situations, uh, they're they're difficult and they're very um, uncomfortable. And so let me just give you a few three examples. And these are not pleasant things. So that's just a, a heads up. These are not pleasant things. Um, your son or daughter is stealing your prescription pain medicine and selling it to other kids at school. And so now you need to call the principal. To, to tell the principal what's been going on. Um, two, 
uh, you were sexually assaulted by a guy from church whom you were dating, and now you need to call the police. Or three, you realize your spouse has been abusing the children, now you need to call Child Protective Services. So these are kind, the kinds of things that happen, uh, kinds of situations that, that many people find themselves in. And we're often torn in, in these scenarios, right? I mean, on the one hand, we know the right thing to do. We know that the principal needs to be notified. We know that the police need to be brought in, or we know that CPS needs to be brought in. You know, at at a just purely logical level, we know that. But we, we don't really want to do it. Like, we do want to do it, but we don't want to do it. We do want to do it because we know it's right. We don't want to do it because we know there's going to be fallout. And so, you know, we wrestle with this. What do we do? Um, as Christians, we might try a little, like, spiritualized escape plan, um, you know, we come up with other options, and so forgiveness often sounds like a very appropriate um, response, right? We're Christians. We're supposed, like, God forgave us. We're supposed to forgive others. I mean, of course, that's what we would do. Um, and we might say to ourselves, uh, wouldn't reporting the other person be unloving? You know, we kind of talked about that a few moments ago. Um, I mean, if I call the police, this other person's going to hate me. They might harm themselves. I mean, I I can't do that. You know, looking from the situation, if if it looking at the situation from the outside, you know, you're not one of the the people involved. It's a no-brainer, right? Call the police or or whatever the appropriate response is. But if you're in the middle of it. Um, everything's a bit foggy. Um, Brad Hambrick uh, uses a, a phrase that, that came up in um, uh, the military world, the fog of war. The, the idea being that like in the middle of the conflict, you know, there's, there's bullets whizzing by and there's bombs exploding and people yelling and you can't see who's shooting at you from from the, the, other, the other side, and there's, there's so much evil being done. Do we respond to the evil by you know, just nuking everything? What do we do? Uh, the fog of war. It, it, it becomes difficult to, to see right from wrong anymore, and it all just kind of you know, meshes, mixes into this gray um, cloudiness. And that can happen when you're, you're in a situation like this. And um, when, we don't feel, when we don't feel good about doing what needs to be done, we can start rationalizing doing nothing, right? Well, you know, we run through in our heads, well, you know, here's like four reasons why if I just kind of let this lie, if I just let this be, it, it, it'll actually be better if I, if I just don't say anything. Um, and Brad Hambrick has this, I think it's helpful, I've included it there in your handout, um, how, how discomfort distorts logic. And he walks through kind of a 10-step thought process of how we might go from knowing, you know, something happens, we know the appropriate course of action that needs to take place, how we might rationalize doing nothing. And I'm just going to walk through this real quickly with you. Um, and it, it's there in your handout too, so um, you can follow along there. So one, I, I learn of, of awful actions someone did, uh, someone I know, someone I care about. Two, I feel angry, I feel sick, I feel betrayed, I feel despondent. Um, at, this par- at this point in the, in the thinking and, and response, I'm, I'm thinking of the people who were harmed. This is terrible. I, you know, they're, they're just, I, I really feel for them. And, and number three, I realize what needs to be done. So let's say in this case, it's, it's contacting the authorities. And, and I also realize that many lives are going to be impacted. There, many lives are going to change if, if I contact the authorities. And then at, at step four, there's a shift that begins to happen in our thinking, our reasoning, 
Um, I feel, you know, I realize lots of people are going to be affected, and I feel worse now. And I'm not just aware of what happened, so the the event that that happened, the offense. I realize now I have to make some choices, and I start thinking about the future. Um, my focal point begins to shift to the impact on the person who did the wrong. So initially, you, you're, you know, your heart's with the people who were hurt. Now you start to think, oh, wow, if I contact the authorities, you know, there's this whole chain of events that could happen to that person, and now I feel bad for them, for the offender. Uh, five, reasoning begins to mix with conflicting emotions. Um, I realize my actions will have huge consequences. Number six, I focus on the outcome of my choice to, to act, and so I begin considering not doing anything because I can kind of foresee where this is going to go and, and what the impact will be on me now, and, um, and maybe it's better if I just keep it quiet. Um, another shift happens at, at step seven. Uh, I feel less involved in the situation if I take the more passive road. So, you know, if I don't do anything, then I'm not really responsible for what happens to the wrongdoer, and and I can kind of just, you know, wash my wash my hands a bit. Um, eight, but we're Christian people, so my conscience beats me up for considering the possibility of doing nothing. You know, ah, you know how it is. It just doesn't sit right with you. Like, am I really going to just stay quiet? Um, And then this is where we kind of spiritualize it um, wrongly, steps 9 and 10. And this is usually um, the steps that result in scandal. So people do, somebody does a wicked thing, and those who knew about it did nothing. So 9 and 10, forgiveness emerges as a Christian theme that helps me rationalize doing that doing nothing is a godly response. And then 10, my choice to do nothing protects the wrongdoer instead of the vulnerable under the guise of forgiveness. Uh, very common. This is very common in the Christian world. Um, I won't get into it, but you can go and find... Um, stuff online about all kind, all kinds of major, major evil that's been going on in evangelical Christian churches that's been exposed over the last several years, where it's this kind of process. Um, you know, just horrific evil is being committed inside these churches, and the churches just kind of rationalize saying nothing, doing nothing, and just ultimately letting it con- continue. Um, and, and as individuals, you know, we can fall into this. Now, steps one through three make sense, right? You, you realize uh, this is a terrible situation. You feel horrible. Um, you feel angry. You're, you're thinking about the people that, that were hurt. And you're like, okay, I know what I need to do. That all makes sense. Um, but it's at, it's at step four where things begin to get a little, that, that fog of war starts to set in. Uh, you're beginning to identify with the wrongdoer now. And, you know, our, our focus is changing from um, how would I want this handled if I were the victim? So that's, you know, steps one through three, you're like, if I was in that person's shoes, what would I want, you know, others to do? Instead, you start to think, how would I want this handled if I was the wrongdoer? And you're like, oh, you know, if I was in that situation, I, you know, I wouldn't want the police involved, I w- you know, whatever. And the and so you start to that fog starts to set in. It gets heavier and heavier. Um, at step seven, you, you're kind of preparing the way for doing nothing. Um, you know, usually if your conscience is is you know the red lights flashing and it's, it's it's screaming, you know, usually that's an indication like, hey, slow down, maybe <laughs> maybe reconsider. Uh, perhaps what you're considering is wrong. But in, in this case, because, because of the fog of war, our conscience bothers us either way. You know, our conscience bothers us about contacting the authorities, and our conscience bothers us about doing nothing. And so you, you, you don't know what to do. Speak up, stay silent, what do I do? 
Um, and so we typically opt for the safest course of action, safest measured by what makes us feel okay, and that response would be, do nothing. Do nothing. If, if I just don't make a decision one way or the other, I'm kind of walking this middle, this middle road, and I can avoid my conscience plaguing me about speaking up. I can avoid my conscience plaguing me about not doing anything um, or about staying silent. And, and this, here's the problem, though. Doing nothing leaves vulnerable people exposed to danger. So we might think, well, this is, this is a pretty reasonable compromise. But it's actually just, you know, um, exposing people to further harm. And, uh, you know, so we're uncomfortable with doing nothing, and so we opt for the, I said, the, the Christian response. You know, you have to see I'm putting it in quotes. Christian response, because it's not really a, a Christian response. Um, forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. And Hembrick says, we misuse the Christian concept of forgiveness to con our conscience into silence. So we, we take what sounds biblical, what sounds you know, spiritual and loving and, and Christ-like, forgive and forget. And, and we twist it, though, because what we really mean is just kind of hide hide and do nothing. Um, and we, we trick ourselves. And so we, we label our passivity as, well, I'm being gracious. I'm being loving. I am being forgiving. Um, doing nothing, I have this here as a heading in your notes, doing nothing is not a Christ-like response. And, and we need to just we need to be settled on this. Doing nothing is not a Christ-like response. So um, flip the questions. You know, if I was in the the wrongdoer's shoes, how would I want people to respond? Flip the questions, and it's clear that doing nothing is not a Christ-like response. What if you were the child being abused? Uh, what if you were the next girl, uh, the church guy? Uh, goes on a date with? Um, what if you were the parent of the students buying the, the pills? So, you know, flip the questions. Think about it from the perspective of, of the victims and potential next victims. Identifying with the victim um, exposes the do-nothing option as, as dangerous and cowardly. So it shows that it's not a Christ-like response. It's just wimping out, essentially. It's, it's protecting yourself. Um, and that's not, that's not the way Jesus did things, right? I mean, Jesus was drawn to vulnerable people. Jesus welcomed vulnerable people. Jesus defended and protected vulnerable people. Um, scripture tells us over and over again, God is the defender of the widow, the stranger, and the orphan, which in ancient Israel society were the, the most vulnerable people. Again and again, Scripture is saying God is their defender. God is their protector. Um, and so the Christ-like response to somebody that's, that's doing dangerous, harmful things is not to say, you know, well, we're Christ-like people, and so it's all okay. It's, hey, we need to protect these people that are in harm's way. Um, we should follow Jesus' lead in identifying with the vulnerable people. Doesn't mean we don't give any thought to the wrongdoer and how, the, how Jesus and the gospel might actually help them. That, that's a consideration. But our, our first consideration should not be, um, wow, this must be so tough for the, the person who, you know, that guy that raped the girl from church. I mean, now he's just always going to be known as a rapist and he'll probably never get married and he's probably going to go to jail. And that's just terrible. You know, I feel so bad. He was such a great, you know, he's such a, a wonderful part of our Bible study. I really loved having him there. And now, 
his life's ruined. And then there's this woman over here that's just like destroyed and like, come on, get over it, forgive. Um, that's an extreme example, but that's, um, that's what happens. And so we need to understand the difference between um, someone being innocent and someone being vulnerable. So, um, you know, how do we convince ourselves that doing nothing is a Christian response? <clears throat> well, look at step 10 again. Uh, my choice to do nothing protects the wrongdoer instead of the vulnerable under the guise of forgiveness. And so, um, as Christian people, we, we tend not to hear that word vulnerable. Instead, we, we tend to think strictly in terms of innocent and not innocent. And we tend to think of that in, in ultimate terms. And we say, well, we know from Scripture there, there are no innocent people. I mean, we are all sinners. Before God, we are all guilty. There's no such thing as an innocent person. And so we, we start to, uh, because we don't think, um, we don't bring the whole Bible to bear on our thinking, we, we start to distort reality. And so, for example, um, you know, the teenage, that teenage son, he was so disrespectful to his father, no wonder his dad hit him. I mean, he, he had it coming. He, he's breaking, you know, God's commandments, not respecting his, his uh, father and mother. I, I've, I've listened to Christian people use this kind of logic for, for physically assaulting teenagers. Um, it's true we're all sinners, but that doesn't erase the distinction between an oppressor and their victim, the oppressor and the, the vulnerable person, uh, a, a predator and the prey. Um, the, the dis, so in that example I gave, the disrespectful teenager is disrespectful, no doubt. <laughs> um, but, and, and ultimately before God, he's a sinner. Yes, of course. But that doesn't justify the adult father from, uh, doesn't justify the adult father's resorting to physical assault because he felt disrespected. I can't find a Bible verse that says that's okay. Um, just like I can't find the Bible verse about being a jerk. Um, it just we we start to you know we got to use our theology responsibly. Yes, we're all sinners, but when we're talking about real life here, real events, real people, there are people who do evil things against vulnerable people. And that vulnerable person might be a drug addict, might be whatever. That doesn't mean that the, you know, the person that came by and, and strangled them, is, it was justified to do that. Um, I'm not talking about that, that situation that came up recently. Um, but, but you know what I mean? Just because we're all sinners doesn't mean I have the right to treat you like a piece of dirt and do whatever I want to you because you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Who's to say who's in the right, who's in the wrong? Like, you know, um, you get what I'm saying, right? You get what I'm saying. Um, when justice for the vulnerable is needed, that should be our first commitment. Okay? There, there's lots of things we'll have to consider. But when justice for the vulnerable is needed, some horrendous thing has been done and there are people who are powerless to stop it and, and potentially other powerless people who are going to be the victims of it if it's not stopped. When in those kinds of situations, our first commitment should be protecting the vulnerable people. Um, Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Um, it's interesting, the order here. Number one, do justice. Number two, love kindness or show kindness. And then three, walk humbly. Um, doing justice and, and loving kindness are not... Um, they're not contradictory, okay? And it's our own kind of it's our own internal emotional tension 
that, that pits them against each other. And we, uh, just for redundancy, uh, we have a responsibility to protect the vulnerable, even when it's uncomfortable for us, even when it has perhaps um, very serious consequences for the, the wrongdoer, and maybe even for us. Maybe it's going it's to end a relationship or um, whatever it might be. Um, protecting the, the vulnerable ought to be our, you know, that's like number one priority, um, not, you know, the, the wrongdoer's, you know, emotional fragility uh, or whatever the case might be. So, you know, difficult, these are difficult situations, but um, they're not rare, sadly. You know, they, they're, they're actually somewhat common. And so we want to bring um, the, the whole counsel of God to bear on how we think about these things and not, not misuse concepts like forgiveness or grace to, to excuse, hide, justify um, sinful behaviors. And so, um, you know, kind of a theme throughout this whole class, again, today is the last, last class uh, in this forgiveness series, you know, a theme throughout has been uh, forgiveness, biblical Christ-like forgiveness um, requires wisdom. And uh, there's, you know, there's some tricky situations that we encounter. And so hopefully um, this series has kind of given you some wisdom, um, has given you some insights, uh, some help as you work through some of these uh, unpleasant situations that you might find yourself in. Um, I just want to pray now uh, that the Lord would give us grace, that the Lord would give us wisdom um, as we try to, to practice Christ-like forgiveness. So let's pray. Our God and Father, um, we recognize that um, in conflict and, and when sin, is, sin and harm are, are um, happening, the, the fog of war can set in and we can become confused. Lord, would you give us clarity? Would you give us um, wisdom as we navigate um, relationships, as we navigate how to respond to, to people whose hearts are hardened, how to respond to people who are broken over their sin, how to respond when we ourselves are the, the offender? Lord, would you... Uh, work in us by your Spirit and, and take these truths that we've been considering for a number of weeks now. Would you um, work them into our our thinking, our our emotions, our our logic, and our our way of life? We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.